Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of John. We're looking at the last chapter of the Gospel of John, the 21st chapter. I wonder if any of you watched the NFL draft. Well, I got some. <laughs> so I know some did and some wives just grimaced if they were not football fans like their husbands are. Well, it was a time of anticipation, wasn't it? For something to be revealed. And hopefully you weren't disappointed in that. From time to time we have men and or women who come to our church who are students at Texas Tech University Medical School. And every March there is a very important day. It's a day when all of them will gather together in a designated place and at the signal, they will open an envelope which they have received, which will determine where they will spend the next three to four years in residency training. Some are disappointed, some are excited. What's become a new phenomenon in my lifetime, when you've lived as long as I have, you have a lot of new phenomena come into your life, but what has become significant is the revealing of a baby's gender before the baby is born. And it's an exciting time, isn't it? There's a lot of mystery and anticipation. And then people learn what the gender of their child who is still in the womb will be. Are you aware that God the Father revealed what gender His child would be 700 years almost before that child was born. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the Bible says, A virgin will be with child, and she shall bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. The Gospel of John is the clearest presentation of God become man of all the books of the Bible from my perspective. This is just my opinion. It begins with what scholars call the prologue to the book of John, the Gospel of John. It's found in verses 1 through 18. And now this morning what we're going to look at is the epilogue. It's a summation as it were and a look into the future of what's going to happen with this fledgling church that Jesus Christ has won from sin. Well, let me just remind you without looking, you can look at John 1 if you will. I'm not going to deal with every part of it. I'm just going to quote it and let you think with me as I speak parts of John 1.1, the prologue to the Gospel of John. And if you have followed the Gospel of John in this study that has been going on here for quite some time, or in your personal life, you won't be surprised at what you read there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, 
and nothing came into being that has come into being except through Him. In Him was light, and the light was the light of the world. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overpower it. And the Word became flesh. This is the big reveal, isn't it? God becoming one of us. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained the reveal, the person of God in Jesus Christ. And then what we're looking at today in this portion of the epilogue, we're going to only going to deal with the first part, the first 14 verses, but we're going to have Christ come as we're going to see, and He's going to reveal things as He appears to His apostles for the third time after He has been raised from the dead. With that having been said as introduction, let us read this passage and then go back over it in some detail. John chapter 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus manifested Himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and He manifested Himself in this way. So twice the word manifested, this word could equally well be translated revealed. It's a word that is common in the New Testament. It's a word which is a synonym to apocalypto. Apocalypse comes from that word. And actually, the name that is given to the book of Revelation, the last book in our New Testament, in our Bibles, is apocalypsis. It's an unveiling. One person interpreting the word says it's to take the lid off of something. As if something is in a lid, contained there, and we want to know and need to know what is there. Verse 2 says, There were together Simon, Peter, and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus therefore said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. They cast therefore, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. That disciple therefore, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. And so when they got out upon the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid, and fish placed on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three. 
And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested, here's that word again, to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Jesus manifested himself three times. Now that may be a little unsettling to you because we have seen that he showed himself first of all to Mary Magdalene and then three times to groups. And what Christ is getting at here in this passage of scripture, he is telling the apostles and he's by association telling us that God is more likely to show up in a group who are seeking him than just with one person alone. That does not mean that Jesus does not want a personal walk with you. He does. We have evidence of that in the New Testament. But that explains the use of three manifestations when we know in the Gospel of John there were at least four visible, physical representations of Christ to those who followed him. Look at verse 2 again. They were together, Simon, Peter, and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee. You'll remember Cana of Galilee was the place we are told about in chapter 2 of John where Jesus performed his first miracle by turning water into wine and he saved the face of the people who were throwing the wedding party because it would have been greatly despairing for a person who is inviting his friends or their friends to a party related to a very momentous occasion in the family, the marriage of a child, and not have adequate resources to give refreshment to their friends. But Nathaniel is mentioned here. And by the way, the name Nathaniel does not appear in any of the other gospel writers listing of apostles. Does that mean that Nathaniel spoken of here was not one of those twelve? Hardly. Remember, Peter, we know him primarily as Peter. Sometimes we meet him in the New Testament and he's introduced as Simon Peter. Sometimes Jesus speaks just to him with his given name, Simon, which was his Hebrew name. But Jesus, when he saw him in the first time that he came to Jesus, he was brought by his brother who introduced him to Jesus. And he said, Simon, you are the son of John, but you shall be called Cephas, which translated means Peter. So Simon got a new name. And we know him primarily by that name, right? He is Peter, which means rock. He was anything but rock-like in his temperament. If you know the New Testament, you can see that. He was very unpredictable. But Christ continued to work in his life to help him become whom he saw him to be. A friend of mine says that Jesus has bifocals. Some of you have them too. The first pair of glasses I received when I was eight years old, nearsighted with stigmatism. Lo and behold, my optometrist ordered that the lens be lenses with bifocals. And for some reason, there I was an eight-year-old wearing bifocals, where my grandparents were wearing them, and my mother wasn't even wearing them, and she wore glasses. 
But nevertheless, when this friend of mine says Jesus looks at us through bifocals, what he's saying, he looks at us from a distance, but he also looks at us up close. He sees us as we are, but he also sees us as we will become. Do you understand this? When Christ calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light, when Jesus Christ spoke you out of death into life, and just as surely as he spoke to Lazarus, who had been dead for days, he said, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus came out. He had been deceased, and he came alive. That is a picture of what happens to every man and every woman who heeds the voice of Christ internally, hearing the voice of Jesus, and Jesus says, I want to come into your life. I want to give you new life where there's death. And the result is Christ comes in and he gives us new lives. It'll be interesting to see if he has been calling us by a new name when we get to heaven, won't it? It wouldn't surprise me at all. Nathaniel had more than one name just like Simon Peter did. Thomas, we know he's the doubter. We've dealt with him in some detail the last week or so. And also the sons of Zebedee, who would they be? John and James. And then there are two others who are unnamed. Speculation is not a good thing when it comes to guessing who this refers to, but I'll just give you my thought. There are two other men who show up in the first chapter of John, uh, in addition to these five which are mentioned already by name. And their names are Philip and Andrew. So possibly it was these men, these seven men who were spoken of. Now let me pause here just a minute. They're all together. That's what the scripture says. And here again, I believe this is an emphasis on the importance of our not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Jesus loves to pour in to people's lives, especially when we are together. Verse 3, let's see what it says. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Now some people have indicated Peter was just adrift. He was lost because of what he had done in denying Jesus Christ. Now certainly I don't want to minimize that, and the impact that would have had on him, I have no way of knowing. Except I remember when his eyes locked with Jesus, when Jesus was being unjustly tried in the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, and the cock crowed three times, one time, and when the cock crowed, it reminded him that he had done exactly what he said he wouldn't do in denying the Lord Jesus Christ, and he wept. So his heart was heavy. But remember, what was his profession? He was a fisherman. And I'm going to suggest to you, and this is just my idea, you, it doesn't really make that much difference. Simon Peter said to him, I'm going fishing. He was not going fishing for fun or a distraction. He was going fishing for funds. He had to feed his family. And this is the role that he had played prior to coming to Christ. They said to him, middle of verse 3, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat 
and that night they caught nothing. The boat in this passage of Scripture, notice it's prefaced by the article, the. And I'm not trying to give you a lesser lesson in grammar, especially of the language of the New Testament, but it's pretty important. It was not any boat, it was the boat. Which raises the question, which boat was that? Well, let's hold our places here and go back over to the book of Luke, chapter 5. This is Jesus' first interaction to any large degree with Simon Peter and some of the other would-be disciples. Let's look at verse 1 of Luke 5. Now it came about that while the multitude were pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. The Sea of Tiberias is mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 21. And here we hear about the lake of Gennesaret. This is one and the same. Both of these are the same as the Sea of Galilee. These three names were used, we know this, by viewing other literature of historical value about this time. So it's the same body of water, a fresh body of water, whose headwaters are in modern-day Lebanon in what we call Mount Hermon, the high peak that overlooks that part of the land. Verse 2 of chapter 5 of Luke says, He saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And Jesus got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the multitudes from the boat. I'm proposing to you today, this is the boat that is spoken of over in verse 3 of 21 of John. I believe it's also the boat that the apostles were in one stormy night on the Sea of Galilee. They were about to go under. These men who are professional fishermen, therefore professional boatmen, they were about to go under and all of a sudden they saw what they first thought was a ghost and it turned out to be Jesus and they were in the boat. And Jesus took care of them, didn't he? He saved Peter from drowning, but he took care of all of them. They were in the boat. And some people have indicated, and I agree with them, that because the early church, when they would depict in artwork the church, many times they would depict a boat as being a symbol of the church, especially a boat on stormy waters. Because Christ was in the boat, the boat would not sink, would it? Then the storm would not last forever. That's true for us. If we know Jesus Christ, some of you are in the middle of a storm today. I don't know what it is. It could be a financial crisis. It could be a relational issue. It could be an illness you're battling. It could be trouble at work. All kinds of difficulties we are faced with. But as long as Jesus is in our lives, He's in the boat. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And this is so refreshing for me to be introduced to this concept over and over again because not unlike you, I face all kinds of troubles in my life. They take various forms. 
but I have seen in my long life many times that the Lord came and He preserved my life. He didn't take me up out of the trouble. The Bible says many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him or her out of them all. So if you're undergoing some kind of injustice from your point of view and you're wondering where the Lord is, He's where He's always been. If you're with Him, you're in the boat and He's there too. And He's going to see you through that difficulty. Let's go to verse 4. And when He had finished speaking, Jesus said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night. Can you get the frustration? He's, he's deprived of sleep and he's a little tense. And we have caught nothing, but at your bidding, I will let down the nets. Okay, Lord, I'll do it. And are you that way sometimes when the Lord tells you to do something? You just take a big sigh and you, your shoulders stoop. And you say, okay, Lord, I don't have any choice. So I'm going to go ahead and do what you say. Look at what follows in verse 6. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. This was the point of what we would commonly call Simon Peter's conversion. What did he do? He recognized that he was not dealing with any ordinary prophet or teacher. There were many in Galilee at this time. He noticed that he was something incredibly different. He was someone, he describes him as Lord. We don't know if he understood the full sense of what he was saying, but he definitely was telling the truth, right? I'm a sinful man, O oh Lord. You know, before you can receive the gift of eternal life, before Christ can do for you what he came here to do, Jesus Christ died on the cross to secure a place for you and me in heaven, which he offers as a free gift. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. But... He's not going to force His way into our lives. We have to yield to Him. We have to recognize who He is. That He is not any ordinary man. Nor is He just a man. He is fully man. Fully human. We've looked at the way John begins. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Full of grace and truth. He is fully human, but He's fully God also. And what He wants to do, it's hard to believe, but it's, off, it's true. It is so true. He wants to come and dwell in you by His Spirit. That requires our acknowledging our sin. You might say, what is sin? The bottom line of sin, I believe, is given to us in the last verse of Romans 14, the last line says, whatever is not of faith is sin. Unbelief is sin. Not believing that Jesus is who He says He is. Not believing that He is the only way, as He says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. 
And so we have to admit our sins to the Lord. Look at verse 9 of Luke 5. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also James and John, sons of Zebedee, were, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. What in the world? Simon Peter must have thought. I'm just a fisherman. What does he mean that I'm going to catch men? The same thing that he's reiterating in the 21st chapter of John. The same thing that he mentioned in the 20th chapter of John. We saw it last week, if I'm not mistaken, where he says, As the Father has sent me, so send I you. And then Jesus, remember, did something that was remarkable. The scripture says, He breathed on them, and He said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit of God came to indwell them. We looked at the word translated receive, and what we discover, it's used by John in the opening part of his gospel in John 1.12. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. As many as received Him. That word translated received, which is used by Jesus in chapter 20, when He says receive the Holy Spirit, is a word which speaks of open-armed reception. Holding nothing back. We will receive the Holy Spirit. We will welcome Him with arms wide open in humility and gratitude. When He comes to indwell us, it is He who empowers us to do what Jesus had promised Peter and His cohorts they were going to do. Heretofore, they had been fishing for fish and there was going to be a transition in their lives. They were probably going to continue to support themselves with their trade, but they were going to fish for men in the process of their lives. And this is what we're called to be. Not just Peter and the apostles. We're called to fish for men as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. To share the gospel. I wonder, is there anybody here who likes to fish? I'm talking about not for men, but for animals. Do you like to fish for fish? Well, probably so. I remember some of my fondest childhood experiences. My father would say to me, and I don't know how soon he began to tell me what was going to happen on the weekend, but probably a day or two out, and especially the night when I lay down on my pillow at night as a seven or eight-year-old boy, maybe even younger than that, remembering that Daddy had said, now, in the morning, Mike, we're going to wake up early and we're going to go fishing. We're going to Stuttgart. And Stuttgart's in Arkansas, if you don't know, not far from my hometown of Memphis. And it was a place that just teemed with all species of fish. And when the shell crackers, they were called, were biting, my dad, I had heard him say, and my dad had bigger hands than I, he said, we're catching them, they're bigger than my hand. And I, my eyes just got bigger, and I said, I can't wait, Daddy. 
I didn't sleep well that night. We went together and sure enough, what my daddy said would happen occurred. We fished. There's joy in fishing. But you know, I remember another time. It was in October this time. The previous time had been in May. In October, same scenario. Daddy and I were going. This time we were going with two of his favorite men and mine too because they were friends of the family and they were both happened to be devoted Christian men too. And so we went and it was drizzling when we left. Now, October in Tennessee can be kind of messy. And if it's drizzling and warm, it's one thing. But if it's drizzling and shows no possibility of quitting and actually gets heavier, it's not that pleasant. And I remember we went fishing that day and I, I didn't catch a one. We went to fish for crappie this time, but they weren't biting for some reason and we came home. Did that keep us from going fishing a third time? No, I'm not going to tell the details of any of my fishing escapades as a boy. But what I do know is a fisherman is optimistic. If you're a true fisherman, you can go and strike out completely. And then what? The next time someone says, let's go fishing, it doesn't take you that long to say, I'm in. And you go. And this is what we know who know Jesus. Have you been a fisher of people? Have you had the privilege of being used by God to lead someone to Christ? I don't even like that terminology. It sounds like we're doing the work. I would say introduce someone to Christ. We can't make anybody believe in Jesus, but we sure can whet their appetite by the way we treat them and by the message of the gospel. People don't save people. Jesus saves people. It's He who speaks to people. He gets people's attention. And when you begin to really explore Jesus Christ as more than just some vague historical figure, someone probably is here today who is in that capacity. You're just sort of interested. But if you really give Him your full attention in seeking Him and look into Scripture what you will discover is this is not any ordinary person. He is human, but he is much more than that. Christ says, follow me in the book of Matthew, and I will make you fishers of men. I'm going to ask you, with that having been said, to go back with me to... John chapter 7. We're going to look at another passage, just three verses, but they are relevant anytime, but they're especially relevant when we're talking about this matter of our becoming fishers of people. Look at verse 37. This particular incident occurred probably about a year or so before Christ's crucifixion. And it was during the Feast of Tabernacles, Tabernacles, which was the most festive of all the required feasts that male Jews 20 years of age and older were required to attend. It was a wonderful thing. And verse 37 says, Now on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If a man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, let's consider this a little more carefully. If anyone is thirsty, he's not talking about for agua. He's not talking about water, H2O. He's talking about spiritual thirst here. Spiritual thirst. Knowing like Pascal, the great French mathematician philosopher, as he pursued Christ, he was a devout churchman. He was involved in every opportunity that was made available to him to come and worship the Lord Christ. But he was still empty. And in his musings, they're found in his diary, which has been published, it's entitled Pensies, which in French means thoughts. And he says, every man is created with a God-shaped vacuum, which only God can feel. Fill. Do you have that hole in your life? It's as if you've tried everything to bring fulfillment and you've come up short every time. Well, the answer is doing as Peter did when he fell at the feet of Christ and said, I'm a sinner, Lord. I'm not worthy of you. And to understand that Jesus is the one to whom we must come. If any person is thirsty, let him keep on coming, actually, is the correct interpretation of let him come. Let him keep on coming to me and keep on drinking. This is not a one-time kind of event. It only takes one moment of commitment to put us in the pipeline of receiving the living water that we need to do as Christ has called us to do, having become what Christ has call, called us to become. And we are light, and we are salt, and we are people who are fishers of other people. But the thing that we must understand is the Holy Spirit who empowers us in this whole matter. Now let's make our way back to chapter 21. The third verse. That night they caught nothing. Does that strike you as being of importance? It's easy to overlook it. People go fishing. And they come back without any fish to show for their outing. They caught nothing. I believe Jesus is teaching them a principle, reiterating it actually, that He gave them not too long before this encounter, within the last several weeks, he had heard, they had heard him say this, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. He was teaching them that fishing for men is not like fishing for fish. Fishing for men is quite different. When it comes to honoring Christ most by helping Others come to know Him. We have to depend on the Lord. Some of you are very glib. You have no problem striking up a conversation 
And not only you're glib, you're pretty funny too. You're clever. You have a joke for every occasion. And you're kind of lighting up a group when you're there. But you've never introduced anyone to Christ. Why do you think God gave you that talent to begin with? To be sanctified. For God to use you as He created you the second time to do the thing that He created you for the second time to do to glorify Him. In John 15, the Bible says, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. He chose us not just to save us. He chose us to use us. You want to get fired up about your life? Well, obey Christ. Be a fisher of people. That requires, I know I'm sounding redundant here, I, I realize that. It re requires that we keep on coming, keep on drinking, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And the absence of fruit, and we're not into head counting here, okay? But the absent, uh, absence of fruit in our lives as Christians is an indication that we really aren't keeping on coming and keeping on drinking of Jesus, who is the water of life. And so we have this. Remember when Jesus talks about the kinds of soil, three kinds of soil, four times kinds actually. And he says, good soil is what we would want to be. That's what I'd like to be, and I hope you too. And he says, some, all will bear fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. Does that mean the people who only bear 30-fold fruit are not as important as those 60-folders or 100-folders, not as useful to the Lord? No, because it remains a mystery. God uses some people to lead more to Christ, to introduce more to Christ than others. But the point being, we just abide in Christ. We trust Him completely. We have to come to that place and die to ourselves, as it were, and then yield to the Spirit of God and watch Him work. Verse 4 says, But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. What was wrong with these guys? Well, it's right at dawn. You, you know how there's just a fine line between darkness and light, isn't there, at the beginning of the day? And I can imagine they're, they're squinting, trying to recognize this figure, and the figure was 100 yards away. Now, they didn't have bifocals in that day. They didn't have eyeglasses at all. Perhaps all of them had 20-20 vision or better, but they, they were just wanting to know who this was. And they were tired, too. They'd been up all night working. Let me say this before I quit. Jesus appeared to them not on a Sunday this time, I talked last week about the institution of Sunday. It became the day. Easter 1, Easter 2. I don't remember how many resurrection days there have been. I've done, not done the calculation from the day Christ was raised from the dead. But today is resurrection day. But the Lord doesn't just show up when people like us are gathered in a place like this, opening the Word of God and hoping that God speaks to us. He appears in workplaces. All of you practically have jobs. And you have places of service not here in this building. Thank God. 
that you don't. Because you are God's undercover agents, as it were. As you go out into the community and you go, and remember what we saw two weeks ago? When Christ gives what we call the Great Commission, there's only one full-fledged verb. What is it? Make disciples. And what precedes that, many people would say, that's the Great Commission. Go. But we've discovered it's as you go, make disciples. As you go to work. As you go to your civic organizations. As you go to your doctor's office for appointment. Or you go and have to wait in line at discount tire just to get your tires Air, Wade, whenever you're there, always be ready. Always ask the Lord for an opportunity. And you will be surprised how frequently He does that. And it's not on a Sunday, and it's in their workplace. I could tell you about two or three groups in our church of men. And I could go to where they meet every week on a certain day at a certain time. And they have been meeting some for decades. And it's not just a hail fellow, well met kind of meeting. They love each other. But they open the Bible and they look at what does the Scripture say. Because they know that the Scripture bears witness to Jesus Christ. And Jesus will be there with them because He promises, wherever two or three have gathered together in My name, there will I be also. Young men, old men, middle-aged men gather together. And I know this must be happening among our women too. Our women come to Bible study on Thursday and Tuesday. And part of what both of those Bible study groups do, those groups break off into small groups and they talk about what they've been taught and they have fellowship with each other. This is important, that Jesus will show up wherever He is honored. And He wants to use all of us to accomplish His purpose of evangelizing the world to bring glory to God. Look at 5. Jesus therefore said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? Was He being mean to say that? Not really at all. In fact, maybe He was saying something like this. How are you getting along? He's wanting to know what's going on with them. And they answered him, no, that's a true fisherman's answer when you hadn't caught anything. Doesn't want to talk about it? Nope. End of discussion, right? And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. They cast, therefore, and then they were not able to haul in it in because of the great number of fish. A great number of fish. I asked David to read from Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12 on purpose. Because that's the picture of not the temple of Solomon, not the temple of Herod. It's the temple in the New Jerusalem. And it's a beautiful scene. It's kind of mesmerizing when you think about what it describes. Out from under the door. First there's a little trickle of water and before long it's ankle deep, then knee deep, then waist deep. And then it's so deep nobody can even walk in it so people have to swim. And remarkable things happen. I have read an article recently, and Ezekiel was in Babylon at the time. It's talking about New Jerusalem, I know that. But I've read an article recently, and I didn't get into detail with it, but it says the Euphrates River has dried up. 
Now that is terrible for some place in the Middle East. Many of you feel like your life is just dried up. The Spirit of God comes and refreshes. And this is a picture of that, I believe. And what happens is there are many fish. Did you catch that twice in the 12th verses we read? Many fish. And I believe this is what the Lord wants to tell you and me. Among other things, he's saying, in Christ there is neither slave nor free, male nor female. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. In other words, in Christ, it's a place for all people created in the image of God who trust in Christ alone for eternal life. Isn't that wonderful? This is what I love about being a part of a church. Because we have people from different ethnicities, people from different kinds of work backgrounds, socioeconomic levels. It's awesome, the body of Christ, and we're one in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit, when He is in control of a body of believers, like He predicts He will be. And let me back up a minute. In Ezekiel 36, He says, I will remove from you your heart of stone. That speaks of no spiritual life. I will give you a heart of flesh. That's the new heart that we receive when we receive Christ. He comes in, and where there was death, there is life. And then he says, I will put my spirit in you, and I will move you in whom that spirit lives to accomplish what I have given you to do. Do you see the importance of the Holy Spirit of God? It's, his importance is beyond our imagination, really to accomplish the work that He has given us that would be Jesus to do. Verse 7 of chapter 21, That disciple therefore whom Jesus loves said to Peter, It is the Lord. Who recognized Jesus? The one whom Jesus loved. Does that mean Jesus didn't love Simon Peter? James? He didn't love Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel? He didn't love the other apostles? Absolutely not. He loved them all. Because in chapter 13 of John we saw Jesus loved His apostles to the end. And that would be the end of Jesus' physical life on the cross. To the very end He loved them. This is our Lord's love for us. But what we do know Jesus teaches in John 14:21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and I will love him, and I will reveal myself to him. What commandment is Jesus talking about? In the context of that teaching, what we call the upper room discourse. In the 13th chapter, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This is the all-encompassing commandment as it relates to our relationships with one another. And the book of James actually calls it the royal law of God, the law of loving each other. And he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. You know, nothing pleases Jesus Christ more than our loving each other because when we love one another, we're really loving Jesus, aren't we? Because He indwells all those who are part of His family. 
And therefore, we want to be men and women, if we know Christ, to have that kind of connection to the Lord Jesus Christ and loving Him. And let's look a little further in this passage of Scripture. Middle of verse 7, And so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. He was impetuous. He was still who he was, which is not a bad thing. If that's the way God made you temperamentally, don't buck it, but let Christ control you. Verse 8 says, But the other disciples came in the little boat, the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. And so when they got out upon the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. This would make no difference to us unless I pointed this out, to most of you at least. The word charcoal fire is used by the writer of John to describe Peter in the courtyard of Caiaphas when Jesus was having that kangaroo court decide his fate and he's warming himself by a fire. And John is explicit. It was a charcoal fire. Jesus is using a charcoal fire here not to torment Peter at all, but he's bringing to his memory what happened. And then undoubtedly, it brought to mind the great despondency that followed his failure to protect his Savior. But he now is going to see, we won't see this today, but later, how he's reinstated and Christ is going to use him in a magnificent way as he goes forward. Look at verse 11. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. Now that's a catch, isn't it? And, after, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. So this is what we see. How does Jesus reveal himself? Now, he reveals himself through his word, doesn't he? He is the word, but he reveals himself to us through the word. We've looked at a passage of scripture with associated scriptures. And who is the focal point? of all these scriptures that we've looked at, the person of Jesus Christ. And let me remind you, earlier in the Gospel of John, John 5, 29, Jesus says, you search the scriptures. He's talking to the people who are trying to do him in. You search the scripture because you believe that in them you have eternal life. And these are they which speak about me. The Old Testament, God's word is replete with reference and depiction of the person whom we call Jesus Christ. But beyond that, there's another thing besides the Word of God. Verses 12 through 14 give us insight. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. I'd like for Jesus to cook me a meal, wouldn't you? I'm sure it was awesome. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. They knew who he was. He would appeared to them twice before as a group, with the exception of Thomas. He only saw the Lord once, but did he ever see him? That second visit of Christ to the gathered disciples. Jesus came and took the bread and gave them and the fish likewise. Do you know the Lord's given us what we call the Lord's Supper to represent him? 
Paul in the 11th chapter of Corinthians says, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we will proclaim his death until he comes. A.T. Robertson, one of the great scholars in evangelical history in the U.S., and he was a Baptist to boot. He says, the Lord's Supper is the great preacher of Christ until he comes again. That's what he was saying. So when we observe the Lord's Supper, it's also something that has been given to us to remember, but to think about the future and help others who don't know Christ to come to know Christ. Verse 14, this is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Jesus Christ is the visible expression of the invisible God. He is. Also, that was from the book of Colossians chapter 1, chapter 2. It says, Jesus Christ is the full expression. He is fully outfitted, actually. The word which translated fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ is a word which was used in shipping circles in biblical times to describe a sailing vessel that was fully fitted, fully outfitted to accomplish its mission. Jesus is that person. And believe it or not, Jesus wants a relationship with you personally. He wants you to give your life to Him so that He can use your life to glorify God in the way that you were created in the first place. Won't you give your heart to Him without reservation? Quit holding back. You'll never regret it when you turn your life over to Jesus. Oh Lord our God, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Let the peoples praise Thee, O God. Let all the peoples praise Thee. Thank You, Father, for the Bible. Thank You, Holy Spirit, for giving it to us. Thank You, Holy Spirit, for explaining it to us. Thank You, Jesus, for being willing to be the subject of it. And all that cost You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.